millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Because it's time. It's, it's time for reparation. The only thing I have in common with this character is that she's black. This does not look like me or sound like I'm me. I'm sick of being a side Indian character. It's like, it's a form of cultural imperialism. How are you supposed to feel that exploitation is the best you can LGBTIQ get? LGBTIQ rights are black rights. We have always been here. Black queers, we will always be here. This is Amir Rahman. I'm Francesca Ramsey. I'm Gary Foley. And you're listening to The Race Card. Welcome to Racecard, I'm your host, Ahmed Yusuf, and joining me in studio today, we've got co-host Jaspreet Sandhu. Hi. And before we begin, we'll be doing an acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge the Kulin people as the owners on the land on which we meet, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and future. This land was never ceded in the process of colonization, occupation, incarceration, and genocide that began over two centuries ago, continue to this day. We have comic Nazim Hussain in studio today, and also we look at what we have in the bin this week, and our featured story is on deaths in custody, highlighting one of the biggest cases in recent years. What's going on, people? This is Akala, and right now you're listening to the race card. Big up. So this week in studio, we have Nazim Hussein, comic extraordinaire. <laughs> Good on you. So, so Nazim, thanks for coming on the show. Um, I'm extraordinarily happy to be here. <laughs> Uh, all right, and, and Jaspreet's here to, to do the interview with me. Yes, I'm yeah. excited. How's it going, Jaspreet? Good. All right. Good to be here. In this underground, buddy. Yeah. Where are we? <laughs> oh, we're, we're underground in Sin Do you disclose the location of this place for listeners? Well, like, uh, you, you you saw when we just came in, yeah. you know, you just got swamped by some uh, fans. By swamped, you mean two people. <laughs> One person and the other person was like, all right, I'll come in the photo. <laughs> hey. I'm just saying, you know, I don't want the fans to come through. and <laughs> That's and why we, we meet underground? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I, I, th- I think that's reasonable. Or this is like a, a mugging setup. Maybe. Yeah. I got no money. I got chocolate. Hey, by the way, guys, I brought these in. Chocolate biscuits? Is by this the... interrupting the podcast? No, no, no. Cool. <laughs> by the way, uh, Nazim has brought Unbranded. in some chocolates. We're not going to say the brand because <laughs> we, on the race card, we don't, oh, we don't disclose you. any brands. There you go, chocolate. Even though... They must might taste really nice. Yeah. Anyway, okay, cool. uh, so so Nazim, yeah, how long have you been doing comedy? Um, oh, I, I did my first like uh, official comedy spot, like p- proper stand up, in two thousand and six, uh, or maybe two thousand and five. Two thousand five or two thousand and six is when I did raw comedy. That was the open mic competition that's run by the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Um, Got through to the state finals. Amir Rahman also got through to the state finals. Um, he beat me and then went on to become the national runner-up. Uh, you've had him on your podcast before. Yeah, we have. So I'm like the B team in terms of discussing oh. matters of race and politics. Oh, but look, I'll try and live up to his standard. <laughs> yeah, of course. I've brought chocolate to try and help. <laughs> yeah, that's why I started. I did that. Actually, before that, I did... Um, I, did uh, uh, I was... 
Like, I opened up for Allah Made Me Funny, who are these three Muslim comedians from America, and uh, they're like the first, well, the first kind of Muslim stand-ups to kind of make it big or really make a name for themselves as stand-ups. And I used to love their stuff, memorized all their bits online, and then they came to Australia, and someone was like, oh, they're looking for a for someone, a local comedian to open up for them and I've been directed to you, Nazim. And I had never done stand-up before. All I'd done was like stuff at community events, so like Muslim community events. I used to be the guy that stands up sort of at the start of the, the event and just, you know, when the projector would break down, I'd make fun of people in the audience just to, just to pass the time so that people weren't distracted. And so that was my stand-up experience. So then they were like, do you want to do it? I was like, oh, yeah, I've done heaps of stand-up. I've done that projector stuff. Anyway, I went out and um, opened for them in front of like 2,000 people. They had like a huge audience. And it was just me telling stories. It wasn't very polished at all. And when I think back to those jokes, we could loosely call jokes, they weren't very good. But that was... And then after that, those guys were like, hey, Nazim, you've really got a spark. Yeah, I think you could be somebody if you actually knew how to write jokes. So then they sort of... They literally sat me down and said, there's actually a craft to writing stand-up. So Azhar Osman, Preacher Moss, um, they kind of taught me how to, you know, to be a stand-up. What was that like? Oh, those guys are like my comedy heroes. But when I was, you know, in terms of like... Muslim, st- like I, I, just, I, I did, and I still absolutely do love those guys. Really great. They sort of, you know, they said there, there is a craft to doing this. You know, it's very writing intensive. And then I found out, I did a bit of research after that. Jerry Seinfeld takes him eight hours to write three minutes of stand up. You know, he's a prolific writer. He writes pretty quickly. So yeah, it's not just you know, you can be a funny guy and get up on stage and just tell stories and jokes. But if you want to tell good stories and good jokes, you've got to think about it. And, you know, there are techniques. You know, you've got to think about how to tell a joke in the smallest number of words possible, you know, like how to phrase things. You know, it's just obviously, you know, stuff that you, I now perhaps take for granted a little bit more. Like I didn't, I didn't really think about back then. I guess how long did it take you to, to learn that craft? Oh, I'm still learning. I feel like I'm very, very early in my comedy career, very young. Um, so still, still learning. I still, I feel like I'm sort of way out of my depth. I sometimes feel like there are people that you know. Um, I, you know, sometimes you're like, oh, I just wish I could continue learning without people watching me. But you know, you've got an audience of people who. Now I think back to my to our first shows that Amir and I used to do, and, and Muhammad as well back then. I think, man, those were some really amateur jokes, but people watched us and paid money to see them. You know, and and we're, we're better now, but. You know, imagine in five years when I think back to the shows that I'm doing now. and Yeah, anyway, someone said the most uncomfortable thing is to watch a stand-up comedian growing on stage. Like, because it's true. Like, it's just, I don't know. It's, anyway, it is what but it is. Do you know those those initial stages, the going up stage and, and you know, like it's, you're in front of a group of people. Yeah. Some of them you don't know. Some are family. A lot of family. <laughs> How is that like going up and, and kind of like burying your soul in that sense? Well, sometimes it's burying your soul. Sometimes it's not. Most of the time it's not. But, <laughs> but yeah, it's pretty, like, it's a, when you think about it, it's a very cocky thing to do, to get up on stage and say, hey, everybody, I'm about to be funny. Get ready to laugh. But, um, but yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's fun. And I, I only have started to think about it in that way very recently. When I used to start getting up, on, when I used to just get up and in front of people and make them laugh, I just used to think it was the most positive, awesome experience because everyone in the audience at community events anyway, and in those early shows when it was just community coming to shows, or mainly primarily community, it was all about just having a great time. You know, that's kind of how it felt. Now I feel like, you know, you get up on stage and you know that the audience is judging you in a different way because, you know, you've you've got a reputation. What's that like? Oh, it's just it's a bit more pressure. You know, you've got to, you've got to. You've got to continuously be growing and, and adapting and 
you know, saying different things and uh, it's fun. It's, I, I, but you still got to remember that you're having a good time. Like the audience is there to have a good time. But I think in the, in the performer's mind, you know, that like uh, that there's a little bit more at stake when it's kind of your career now. I guess how does that pressure make you feel? It's not as fun as it used to be. Like when you, when you start out, when you do like your hobby, it's a hobby. It's just something fun that you love doing. Whereas when your hobby becomes your job, it, it, it becomes serious even if you don't intend it to be, you know. Because not even that long ago, this, the comedy was... The side job for you, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I used to work as a tax consultant till to, till like the end of 2013. Cool. I worked at a professional <laughs> services firm um, full time. What was that like? Like working? Man, I was, and then I, was doing like a, I was Batman. I literally <laughs> used to for the comedy festival for like two years. I think after work, I'd leave work and then on the way to the comedy festival. I'd, I'd walk to the to the venue and I'd take off my jacket, put it in my bag, and then I'd get to the to the venue backstage to be taking off my suit and putting on my cool, casual, stand-up comedian clothes, and then the audience would come in. You know, I felt like I was living a double life, but it was fun though. Like, uh, you know, I, 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 um, you when you when you do your hobby on the side, yeah, you, you know, you can you just have a great time. Whereas, it's exciting. I'm still having a great time. to get it wrong, but I feel like more free now to just be able to do this all the time. You know, it's. So you got um, more time to, to do those those jokes that'll take you on eight hours to make. Oh look, I'm I'm a pretty lazy writer. You know, I write at the last minute. I've got like a, a show coming up in a couple of weeks, and I write two days before. She's <laughs> um, just looking at the chocolate. You know what? I'm sorry to distract you. I, I, I just want to. I just want to kind of eat like, this, but oh, I can't. Sure. I was like <laughs> thinking, oh, what could the value of this be do you on like eBay? Chocolate? No, I do like chocolate. Yeah. Um, I was gonna. I was gonna ask. Uh, in primary school or in school in general, yeah. do you feel like you were the class clown? Do you feel that? People that encouraged you to, you know, make jokes. A, yeah. Well, I, yeah, I think even in primary school, like on all of my report cards, the teachers would always write, Nazim uh, does well in class. He finishes work on time early, but he will always distract other people. Like it, was, it always had, is a distraction to others. Um, but, you know, but, you know, but, he's, but does his work well. So I used to get good grades, but I'd always be the disruption in class. And the thing is, I was always able to like, piss off the teacher but also kind of keep them on side so you know I was always I was just I was just a mis- I would hate to teach me as a kid because I'd be you know I'd be you know making the kids laugh and the teacher would turn around and then she'd say who said that and then I'd be putting my hand up to answer the question just to try and cover my tracks I'd be the most you couldn't really pin me down you know it was that just about growing because I because I've, I've like watched stuff of yours talking about how hard it was growing up and in terms of being bullied <laughs> do you do you feel that kind of helps with your comedy? Yeah, uh, I think maybe my like comedy uh, chops or like I became a funny guy because you know when you grow up a brown kid or a Muslim kid in a white school, general like I went to a pretty white primary school, you sort of have to work out how to give it back. If you can't fight them physically, you got to like have a quick tongue, and so that's kind of how I deal, dealt with it. You know, I'd be the guy, like well, I went to my school reunion a couple of days ago. And there was a guy there, this is my high school, who went to my primary school with me. And, he, and we were talking about one of the bullies in my year level. And he said, I just don't know why that guy didn't ever properly bully you. But I think but I think it was because you were the exception. Because, you know, he'd be bullying all the non-white kids. But he'd say, oh, no, no, leave Nazim alone. He's pretty funny. Like, it was kind of <laughs> always a bit of that. I remember there was one time he pulled my pants down. And that was, I think, for me, the turning point. And then I think, I can't remember what I did, but I made a joke about it. And humiliated him in a way, and I think he learned never to try that again because the embarrassment of being humiliated in front of a group. Like I can't remember what I said, but yeah, like 
that's what so it kind of it turned me into more of a comedian that was my weapon how hard is it just like I guess as a kid trying to hone that skill oh, and in the meantime being bullied oh it's, t- it's difficult like my little sister has a similar personality to me she's a you know quirky funny girl my older sister probably someone that doesn't didn't take it as in, in the same way that I did when she used to get bullied and picked on and it was it wasn't like you know it was when she got bullied because we all got as, as non-white kids in a, in a white school you, you got bullied um, she used to internalise that and she'd just sort of just start to self-exclude you know hang out in smaller and smaller groups and that's kind of what happens to probably most kids they just kind of just you know most children aren't equipped to just deal with a bully or deal with a group of bullies or, or the rest like you know they just kind of just go okay the best way to not get bullied is to just kind of hide away and just stick to myself and my friends so my oldest is a bit like that um, but yeah I think maybe I learned by seeing the way she reacted to not be like that or I don't know but, but yeah um, but there were other kids like I used to be the I used to be sometimes like uh, you know other kids would get but there was another Afghan kid at my school his name was Rahman really nice guy but he used to he couldn't speak much English he was a newly arrived guy and kids used to beat him beat him up all the time and I can't remember I, I think I, I used to make a lot of you know I, I used to kind of stand up with him uh, and for him um, against his guy, and then we used to sort of stick stick up for each other. But yeah, it was like he, he was a quiet kid; he didn't know how to. But yeah, it's just there was a lot of that going on at school. You sort of no one wants to have to stand up against a bully. I don't even you know I never knew how to do it. I, you know, my mum would never say just punch him in the face. Like, that's not the sort of like a single mum. She never sort of raised us to do that. So I don't know. Actually, my mum was pretty good with dealing with bullies. I remember one time we had this. Um, <laughs> so my sister came over to school. And she said, oh, this kid, Sean, is bullying me. And she goes, Sean, is it? And she goes, she goes, she goes which Sean? And my sister said, Sean Vickers. And she goes, okay, okay, Sean Vickers, okay. Tomorrow, go to school. Okay, say this. Tomorrow, go to school and say, hey, Sean Vickers, did you forget your knickers? <laughs> <laughs> so my sister went to school the next day and she said, Sean Vickers, you forgot your knickers. And all the kids started laughing and then Sean never picked up my sister again. Like a few months later, my, my sister came home and said, no, this other girl is teasing me. My mum goes, who is it? She goes, Stephanie. Stephanie who? Stephanie Quayle. She goes, Stephanie Quayle, is it? Okay, why don't you go to school tomorrow and say, Stephanie Quayle, are, are you sure it's not Stephanie Quack quack for quail, and she she went to school the next day. It was a kind of lame pun, but didn't really work. But she said it, and you know the kids sort of laughed. And but yeah, so I think we learned that from my mum. My mum was really quick with the tongue. So you or just so like you know she she she's she's funny with her tongue. So you got your comedy chops from your mum? I think so, probably. My mum's yeah, she's a, she. I've told told this story before, but like one time, my old sister at primary school used to get bullied by this kid who used to play, whose mum used to play tennis with the principal. So my mum went to the principal and said, hey, can you tell this kid off because he's bullying my daughter? And the principal said, oh, Mrs. Hussain, I think you're just imagining it. You're overstating the issue. Just tell her not to worry about it. She didn't want to tell the kid off because the the mum used to play tennis with her. So my mum obviously didn't accept that. So she said, okay. So she left the principal's office. She went to the local MP's office, who at the time was a premier of Victoria, Jeff Kennett. She walked into the office and she said, I'd like to speak to Mr. Kennett. And the the secretary said, "Uh, I'm sorry, he's probably he's busy do you have an appointment she just walked straight past the secretary into Jeff Kennett's office spoke to Jeff Kennett 45 minutes later my mum and Jeff Kennett walked into the principal's <laughs> office and the principal was like oh Mr Kennett Mr Kennett and Jeff just said just do whatever this woman says okay <laughs> and the principal then told off the, the kid because my mum somehow bullied Jeff Kennett in to come into the school so you know, single mum, my mum, she is a gang. Like, this is Jeff Kennedy. I don't really like much of his policies. He closed down a lot of schools. He got a generation of Victorians addicted to gambling. 
But, you know, he, he came to the school with my mum and told of a bully principal. So, I guess know, that's, that's one good thing. How important was your mum in terms of um, the person you are today, I guess, like growing up? Oh, man, everything. Yeah. Especially if you're, um, if you're a migrant, if you're a second-generation Australian, you know, your, your parents are born overseas, you look to your parents' work and how to navigate your way through this minefield that is Australia. It's a pretty, it's a weird place. It's a weird experience. Yeah, she, she, you know, she, she, if she ever, if she ever perceived that we were being picked on, she'd take it into her own hands. Um, but yeah, at the same time, like my mum would always make sure that we were as involved with student and school life as possible because she knew that she probably didn't understand how Australians think and work. So she wanted to make sure that we were exposed to as much of that as possible. So I did scouts, you know, Cubs scouts. Sc- wait, wait, scouts. The yeah. thing is like, I, I I grew up in yeah, Australia. Yeah. I never. I thought that was that wasn't a thing. I thought that was an American thing. So no, scouts, is, scouts a thing. is a thing. Yeah, like we had local scout groups. Scouts was one of the most fun things that I did. Like, um, you know, you go away camping and stuff. And you know, I know there's lots of stories of like camp leaders touching the kids and stuff. Oh. My mum heard about that and she she basically <laughs> she's she's um she used to ask me if uh, she'd give me advice before the camp to say, hey, if anybody tries to touch your bum just <laughs> just make sure they don't touch your bum I was like oh don't tell me anyway but but you know that, but that was pretty prevalent it was the 90s yeah, so all yeah, that yeah, stuff yeah. kind of happened yeah. and, um, but you know there's always those camps where you got to hang out and that was you know I had a lot of fun there um, yeah scouts is, is an Australian thing you go on jamborees and I did cadets at high school which is weird it was like a you know, cadets what cadet. was that like Oh man, to be honest, it's just boys hanging out in the bush, <laughs> just you know, just playing with sticks and fire and whatever. Going to something that you've done more recently, um, Legally Brown. Yeah, yeah. So, how did what was the process in in, in getting that together? Um, well, so when I was, sorry, I just I just like scratched my face. Um, so, sorry, <laughs> to the podcast listeners, but um, uh, I did like balls of steel before that, and so I used to do that when I was working at the tax place, uh, and then those same producers, um. The guy who made that show, we got along pretty well, and he was like, "Hey, why don't we put together like a proposal for our own show?" And SBS were coming to me and asking me if I was interested in a few ideas of my own, to do my own show, and they were all kind of they they worked in some ways. I was like, oh, "Why don't we just pitch to them?" Our, so we put together a proposal, we sent it to SBS, and they were like, "Oh, that's great!" And it was really easy, actually. Um, they just it was a lot of yeses, and it was the right time, and they just said yes and basically got us straight into development and production and then we just made the show. So I m- wrote most of those ideas when I was working as a tax consultant at my desk in the suit. I'd just be scribbling down ideas and spending most of my day doing that. I guess what was it like, um, those initial stages, like you're going from like loosely being involved in things like Balls of Steel, yeah, yeah. writing stand-up with Fear of Brown Planet, but yeah. now you're working on a television show yeah, where you got to write all these sketches and all this kind of stuff. I guess, oh, what's that like? Full on, man. Like, basically, it's not just you. The stand-up is just you, got some ideas, you scribble on a piece of paper, and you go up on stage in a microphone, and you can see how it works straight away. Television, and especially your own television show, completely different. You know, there's writers, there are producers, directors, editors. Run, like, it's just a whole machine, you know? And then there's the network, um, you know, it, 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 this cast, you have to deal with all sorts of... Act- like, it's a, it's a big... Kind of, it was a complete jump for me. Um, so How do you yeah, deal with it? Uh, you just look. Um, I'm, I'm not. I'm a quickish learner, but like there was a lot of learning that went on. So I've never written a TV script before. Then I'd worked on Salam Cafe. You know, I'd written. We'd kind of come up with our own scripts and sketches there. That was for SBS as well and Channel Thirty One before that. 
which we filmed here at RMIT, RMIT TV. What, what? Um, but yeah, like, uh, it was a big, big jump, man. Um, so, you know, I'd have an idea, and I'd have an idea in my mind, and then I'd go, this is what it is, and then, you know, six other people in the room would be like, that's great. How about we do it this way? How about we do it that way? How about we do it? And then it just, along the way, things change, and you have to, like, if you really believe it, you've got to argue... But then someone else might say something that's actually better and you've sort of got to be able to step back and go, actually, that's good. And you make mistakes, you don't make mistakes. You know, like, you learn along the way. And then there's a, a, a studio audience there that you, that you show the sketches to and then they laugh or don't laugh and then depending on their laughter, you change. Like, you just sort of, it's, it's, there's so many moving parts. So to make a joke on television, I don't think people understand how difficult that is. To, to tell a stand-up joke, you tell the joke. If it doesn't work, you can sort of respond to the audience. It's moment to moment. Whereas TV, you've got to make sure it looks right. The script's got to be right. It's got to sound right. You know, it's got to be believable. You know, the editing's got to be right. The music's got to be right. And then you show it to a studio audience, so we sort of get a, an idea of what the television audience is going to say. But then you show it to an audience of people who haven't decided to come to watch your show... It's, you're, you've intruded their space, so you sort of have to have them in mind as well. Kind of, it, 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 it tripped me out seeing that sort of show on TV, just seeing ads for. Like, <laughs> so, yeah, was, were you a bit starstruck? Starstruck by myself. Like, yeah, no, but in the sense that, <laughs> but not in, a, not in like a like a oh, self-absorbed way, but in a kind of way. Bro, oh my god, I'm on television. Dude, I still cannot believe. Like, I can't believe when I see the DVD. I'm like legally brown DVD. I'm like, I can't believe I've got a DVD of my own television. It's really weird. <laughs> oh, oh, it's been on Qantas in-flight entertainment, and that flip like that makes me so excited. Like, I'm a, I feel like a kid. I can never not get excited about this stuff because, I've you know I've, I've only gotten into television only a couple of years ago. So it still feels like... No, but like uh, now but I'm inside yeah. the TV. I still can't really grapple with that idea. But like a lot of comics struggle getting a television show yeah. um, in their entire kind of career, mm. 20, 15 years, and you manage to do it within a few years. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's... it's uh, well, we sort of, at the same time, we, I, I had a lot of experience doing um, Channel 31. And I, th- and I think sometimes people... Well, that was the benefit for me, starting out on Salam Cafe with Muslims... Friends of mine who had no experience in television, we just decided to make our own show on Channel 31. No experience. Channel 31 gave us that experience, you know, where you can make mistakes. So by the time we got onto SBS and then Legally Brown and well, Balls of Steel or whatever, I'd already had hours under my belt. Um, so, yeah, that I can't, I can't express how, inval- how valuable, inval- I don't know the word, how valuable my time on community television was. Like, it taught me the ropes. Um, when you have such a diverse audience, do you ever feel um, that one of your jokes could be taken in the wrong context, or someone might be laughing at the um, someone might be laughing the wrong at, way. yeah at the wrong way? Yeah. For example, like when you do an accent, you're like, oh, are they laughing at yeah. what I'm saying, or are they laughing at my accent? Yeah, true. I mean, that's that's the uh, balancing act, and you know. Um, I learned that even doing stand up. You know, you'd, and so as I said, I started out doing my comedy for my community or people that share my experience and so when they're laughing it's because we can all relate to those experiences but as soon as you do it in front of all of a sudden white people start coming to the show and then there might be people there that are laughing for the wrong reason it's almost like a a mocking or whatever kind of so you're conscious of that but then if you're constructing the joke with white people at the center of your mind or the front of your like and I feel like they become the center of your performance. So you sort of have to work, okay, you've got to understand that, oh, white people are watching your show, but at the same time, the original intent for me is to make people like me laugh, but also audiences broadly, white and non-white, should understand where my heart's at, and, and I can't cater 
and I can't, I shouldn't be thinking about racist people when I'm making jokes because racist people are going to be racist. And so whether they're laughing at or with me is not really my responsibility. You know, it's going to compromise my work. So, yeah, you've got to keep them in mind, but at the same time, like, I don't want white people to be at the centre of my performance, whether or not that means I don't do accents or do accents. I should just be thinking about what is funny to me and what would make me and my friends laugh, white and not white, you know? Mm. Um, so, yeah, politically, I don't know what that means, you know? I get all sorts of criticisms to you know for and against that argument, like that you that white people should or, or are or aren't at the center of our performance. But when I do accents, you know, I don't do it to sort of mock my community. I do it to humanize my experience for people that understand that and people that maybe want to have a window open into the way we joke about things, not as not as like an accurate representation of brown people or Muslims or whatever, that's not what comedy is. I don't think people watch a comedy set and go, now I have license to make those jokes or, or speak in that accent, or I don't think that is how all Muslims or brown people behave. If they think that way, that's not my fault. That's in their minds. They're probably looking for an excuse to to, to be able to speak or to, to think that way. But, yeah. Have you done that a lot? Have I had what a lot? I guess that question. Um, sometimes, yeah, like... The thing is, like, when I do when I do jokes, so out of context, a joke might seem like, uh, if you say that joke in isolation, that's the only joke you tell, then, yeah, I can understand why some people might go, ah, that's a patronising joke, and he's giving, not, he's giving white people the permission to make those jokes. But in the context of my set, where, you know, you make jokes about white society, and it's clear where your heart, like, and you're, you know, and you're making jokes about, <laughs> about white racism, when you're then joking about your own experience growing up, and you're sharing stories of your life, you've got to understand that this guy on stage is not giving permission to racist people to make those sorts of jokes or to think those sorts of things. So, yeah, you can take things out of context and say that joke is a bad joke. But, yeah, but if you listen to that joke in the context of an hour set, you know that that's not what he's doing. Or if you see that sketch in an episode of Legally Brown and in the season, you know, like he's cl- like that show is clearly not saying, hey, white people, laugh at us and make jokes about brown people. That's not the ethos of the show or my performance or me as a... But, you know, again, at the end of the day, all up for grabs and all up for debate, so... I guess, how does that make you feel in the sense that the critique of your comedy and then, which is, because your comedy is is, is political, Mm. it's more... It becomes a critique of your politics and yourself. Yeah, I think that's good, though. Like, at the end of the day, if people are criticising you, it means that they feel invested in it and that they... And that, you know, I think you've got to be held accountable because... You know, you're up there on a platform and you have a platform, you've got to use it responsibly. And I feel like I'm open to criticising other people with platforms too and I would expect them to at least be cognisant of that responsibility and not just feel like, I can say whatever I like. You know, like, it's, it's just stupid. You've got to be, you know, I'm at the end of the day, I'm, I'm doing this and I do this so that I can make my people or people like me happy and, you know, to laugh about things that would ordinarily make us sad. And if I'm not doing that, then why am I doing this? I guess, is, are there any jokes in hindsight or things on Legally Brown or sets you've done that you've thought, all right, maybe, like, now yeah. I thought about it more. I don't want... I didn't want that to yeah, be well, like well, that. Yeah, there, so there, there are probably a few things. Um, yeah, there are probably a few things. Definitely a few. Like, there was a couple of Muslim short jokes and I was like, oh, that's on the line. That's definitely on the line. And, you know, and we, we cut out certain setups. Because I felt like you know I always I always check the Islamicity of things, and that was the, when when I when I you're, you're obviously not Muslim but we have like a pretty strict 
Well, there is there are differences. There, there is a, a way in which you can make jokes about Muslim life and things related to the faith. And so, at times, I felt like I got very close to crossing those lines. Um, and I think for an audience, like even though technically I felt I, I would still stand behind them and say, no, Islamically these are fine. For people watching, if they don't perceive it that way, it's not worth kind of making them feel uncomfortable if it's, you know, if they perceive it to be close to the line. But, you know, at the same time, though, like, you know, uh, I feel like, yeah, sometimes you're pandering to ignorance then. Because I feel like sometimes people don't know that you, you are actually allowed to and what you are doing, I feel, is the best thing, you know, and it's a good thing to do. So... It's tricky. You know, you can't always respond to everybody and, and explain comedy. I feel like sometimes, you know, people expect you to, to put out a thesis after you've done a comedy sketch and kind of explain jokes, whereas they should go out and, 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 and make an informed assessment of that themselves as opposed to putting that on you. But I, I don't know. It's At the end of the day, it, it kind of comes down to your intention and your own level of arrogance and whether you are willing to, to be introspective about your own work and take on other... Yeah, I'm pretty open. Mm. Has your mum ever been like, oh, you yes. shouldn't have said that? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> all the time. Or, or, or particularly, any, anything in particular? If I say bloody and upwards. <laughs> anything upwards of bloody is too oh bad. Oh, my gosh, same. My mum, she's like, hey, don't say bloody. I'm like, mum, it's not even a swear word. Like, uh, But she says shit. My mum swears, <laughs> but when I swear, she's like, Ahmed. And she, she talks to my sisters as well. Ahmed, all of you, like... Stuff like, what, what, what is wrong with these children nowadays? <laughs> and then the next breath, she's like, "Fuck you all." Oh no! <laughs> it's like it's like Hoyo. What is Hoyo's mom in Somali? Where is it? Is it, is it, is it um, it's okay to swear, or is it only okay if you swear? Oh uh, no! Look, you can't question your parents' logic because <laughs> it changes every meal. <laughs> uh, but on on stuff that you're doing right now, um, you you've just done a number of shows, and I think you're still doing a few more shows. A, it's membrane is the is what it's called, isn't it? Hussein in the membrane. Hussein in the membrane. <laughs> so, so talk to me about that. Basically, that's the only pun title I can come up with with my name, Hussein in the membrane. The jokes have got to live. Like I feel like that's a pretty sick title, and I don't know if the jokes do it justice. But no, no, it's a good, it's a good, it's a good show. I'm happy with it. It's yeah, second second stand up show, do a solo thing. So, you know, people 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 came to Melbourne, the Melbourne shows, did, did some extra shows. You know, do it Sydney next. I don't know when this comes out. Oh, it's going to come out on Tuesday. Oh, okay. So, yeah, there's, you know, there's still got to do. So I've done Adelaide, Brisbane, Canberra, and I just did Melbourne, and Sydney's coming up, then Auckland, then Perth, and then Edinburgh, and then London. So there's still a lot of bloody telling these jokes to do. And I guess when, when you're doing these tour, when you're going on and doing your, uh, your comedy sets yeah. and, and uh, your shows, you're travelling, aren't you? Travelling a lot, bro. Don't you hate travelling? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Are you trying to give my podcast a plug? Oh, well, um, I, I'm trying. Please do. Please do. I've got a podcast called uh, Burn Your Passport. Burn you Your Passport. So talk to me about how that started. Um, it's pretty boring. Basically, someone from the ABC was like, do you want to do a podcast? I was like, yep. And then we just came up with it. Oh, well, basically, comedy comedy means that you travel a lot. Like, I'm always on the road. Well, a lot of the time. Try to be on the road as least as less as possible. As less as possible? Yeah. Yes. As less as possible. That doesn't sound right. Yeah, as as less as as least. I try to be on the road as little as possible. Oh, yeah. little. You guys That's are all it. idiots. Do you hey. know how to speak? We're all bad <laughs> at English. I'm, I'm sorry. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk. 
Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Okay, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not <laughs> English. All right, I'm just saying. <laughs> I was <laughs> raised by immigrants, so... Uh, so was exactly. I. We're all, we're all <laughs> crap. Hey, I try to learn as little as possible, um, but, you know, but there's a lot of things on the road that are just annoying. You know, you got to got to put up with just different hotels and things and people and annoying like so that's, this is a podcast where comedians get to whinge about travel and you're not normally allowed to whinge about travel because it's a privilege to be able to travel so this is a safe space for comedians mm-hmm. who work very hard to one hour a night <laughs> and travel to exotic places this is this is our space no look basically it's a funny podcast yes and especially now with the logies the gold logie yeah. this like I, I just just before two, we start yeah. i just feel like um White people are just not getting the gold logies they deserve. I'm just saying this. I'm uh, just going to be honest right now. Lisa is too white. Lisa Wilkinson. <laughs> she got a spray tan and everything. Well, okay? she... was, oh, Lisa Wilkinson's the one on the morning shows. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah the yeah. one that puts up with Carl Stefanovic. Sp- I know, man. Poor Why thing. do people Carl like him? Carl Stefanovic is... W- Dark on the inside. That's 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 a direct quote from him. Yeah, he's he's dark on the inside. And oh, he said that, that Indian people. Um, did you hear what he said about Indian people? No. About oh, no, okay. I don't want to hear it. Oh, no. <laughs> okay, so I think it was like the World Cup or something, yeah. and it was India versus Australia. And he's like, okay, so who's going to be manning all the Seven Elevens today? Yeah, and I'm like, oh, okay. You know what? He ripped that's that straight from joke. a YouTube comment because that Ooh. comes up under like. That's just such a... D- oh, God. What a freaking idiot. <laughs> He's just an idiot. I just, like... I don't understand if people on television understand that they're on television sometimes. Like, I, they're broadcasting to hundreds of thousands of people. Would he say that if he was in the MCG uh, on a microphone and, like... I don't, I don't Maybe he just doesn't understand. I feel like... Uh, it's, it's kind of weird because, like, when you're on television, I feel like you think you're God. You know what I mean? Like mm. I've got all these masses at home. I don't need to nah, see them. Bro. Can I say I don't that's not how people on television? <laughs> hey, no, no, but Maybe I'm not talking about you. No, I'm not talking about you. I'm not talking about you. I'm just saying, like, think about it like this. Like, you could have a massive ego trip. Yeah. There's, like, that show probably gets hundreds of thousands of people view. Maybe yeah. sometimes a million. I'm not sure. It's about a few hundred thousand. Yeah. 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 So like a few hundred thousand people watching their show, yeah. and they don't give a. F- they, they don't see yeah, them. Yeah. They're not in the audience or anything like that. But you have a studio audience, so it's kind of different. Also, look, bro. But, I think you, look. You're making excuses for this guy just being. No, a no. Dick. I know, I'm not making excuses. <laughs> I'm not making excuses. I'm saying it's worse because, like, if he had humility, mm. it wouldn't affect him. Yeah, but you know, there are, there are people with humility on television, and you, you get you, you can you just tell who those people are because just you just like them. Definitely. You know, um, like Waleed. Honestly, one of the most humble people I know, on and off television. Like, like even the case with I mean, Waleed is a brilliant individual. Like, you can't like if Waleed wasn't smart and. In, super intelligent and whatever, and he was just a, an ordinary dumb guy. Like his existence on television would still be amazing, but he's on top of that. He's like he's just a brilliant commentator, and he is able to understand society through a lens that we can't see through because he's just kind of he's enlightened. Thing. So should he win the logies? <laughs> yeah, he should. Whether or not he wins the logies, he's just like. Uh, he, I th- yeah, he should win the Lakers. Yeah, he should win the Lakers. He should win. He should win everything. He's just a really good, good guy. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Nazim. Thank you for having me. Enjoy the chocolates. Oh, I'm gonna oh, enjoy this you. chocolate. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sell it on eBay. Sell it. Sell it's it. Not gonna this is authentic. Yeah, Nazim Hussain. Okay, you know oh, shut up! He's and again, he touched it. He touched it. Where can our listeners find you on social media? Oh, I'm on Snapchat now. Yeah, it's Nazim underscore Hussain. I use the shit out of that. Yeah, I, I followed you on Snapchat. Huh? I followed you on Snapchat. 
Did you? Yeah. Tony Abbott was really never a deeply popular figure among the electorate. Yes. Tony Abbott faced some hostility of his own. Good morning, sir. How are you? Oh, really? <laughs> And uh, really the reason why his prime ministership has crumbled is because he lost the support of the electorate and ultimately the governing Liberal uh, Party. This is not an easy so, day uh, for many people in this building. Leadership changes are never easy for our country. The, the prime minister's not going to lose, he's going to win. The, the prime minister's not going to lose, he's going to win. Uh, my pledge today is to make this change as easy as I can. Now we're going to our segment in the bin, where we kind of like look at some of the stories that we've seen and things that have happened during the week and think. They seemed a bit off, and Jasprit, something that seemed very off, um, and you told me uh, off air about, is this new anime film becoming a live anime, action, a live action film. So tell me about that. Um, so basically, uh, Scarlett Johansson, she's been cast as Major Motoko Kusanagi, which is a lead character in Ghost Shell, which is a really famous, popular anime, and they've decided to make it a live-action film. But the thing is, as you can guess by the name... Yeah, it doesn't sound very... Um, <laughs> it sounds... It doesn't sound very Anglo... It doesn't sound like an Anglo-Saxon yeah, name, does no, it? Yeah, no, it sounds pretty Japanese. Yes, it does, because it's an anime set in Japan. Um, well, wait, so, um, so Scarlett Johansson obviously is not Japanese, has no... She she's not Asian. She can't speak Japanese. She can't speak Jap- Japanese. Um, she's never actually been in any other anime films of any kind that have been adapted for English audiences or anything like that. But now she just you know walks into this, doesn't she? Yeah. Um. The thing is, though, this isn't the first time that this has happened to a POC. You know, um, why people are always taking POC roles? Why actors, I should say, are always taking um. POC roles. We've seen it with The Hunger Games. We've seen it with um, the new movie that's coming out, Doctor Strange, Tilda Swinton. She plays a Tibetan monk, but instead they've changed her into a white lady. So that's always fun. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of like, it's so weird because we, on the opposite of the spectrum, we see people so outraged by the suggestion that um, uh, Idris Elba could potentially play someone like um, James Bond, you know or what I mean? Michael B. Jordan in Fantastic Four. People are so outraged. Like, how can this happen? This isn't right. Star Wars. Star people Wars. are like, white this is genocide. White genocide. <laughs> <laughs> so, white genocide. Um, people are always freak out over those things. You know, because like anime is a specific, and it's so specific to, to Japanese culture in terms of like film and movie culture, and someone who does not know anything about that, jumping into a role, it's just... It seems so weird and so just, it just seems like, because I was reading this headline, so I'll just read to you um, this uh, this article in Cinema Blend. I'm not sure if it's a big, uh, it's a big corporate, I don't know if it's a big movie film sort of cultural website, but it says, 
Ghost in the Shell, the legendary anime classic, is ramping up its path to be to the big screen, especially thanks to Scarlett Johansson finally being locked into the lead role. It's like they're celebrating the fact that she was, uh, she's been given the role, and it's like it's been so hard to lock her in. It's just when things like this do happen, though, um, the internet comes through. Yeah. They show us, okay, but you could have had this person, you could have had that person. And, yeah. you know, there are people out there. It's not like we have to have Scarlett Johansson. Oh, no, we don't have anyone else. Where is Scarlett Johansson and co. going? Scarlett Johansson and all the other white actors who decide, hmm, I'm going to take these POC roles, you guys can have the role of the bin. <laughs> I've been in all rap this year at the awards. Yeah, don't get me wrong, I love hip hop, obviously. But tonight, it's all about soul. Okay, hold on a second. I got another call, wait a minute. No, honestly, man, you are my favorite artist out right now. But I ain't letting anybody in with no littles and youngs and they name. Yeah. Hang on one second. I'm sorry, y'all. Uh, yes. Who is this? Iggy Azalea. Yeah, hey. Oh, no, 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 no. You can come, because what you're doing is definitely not rap. Yeah. Yeah, I got on my overalls. Yeah. In fact, I'm going to send an Uber for you right now. Yeah, come on, be outside. We just passed 25 years since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody. The then Prime Minister Bob Hawke decided to listen to the public outcry and investigate the high rates of Indigenous deaths in custody. At the time, there was one Indigenous death in custody every 11 days. That was then. But has that changed? Indigenous Australians make up 27.4% of the national prison population, but make up only 2.5% of the overall population in Australia. So has much really changed? And is this the lasting effects of a history of Aboriginal deaths in custody? Hello, Walquist. Yeah, um, I, I was the press correspondent for Guardian Australia, but now I'm a Melbourne-based reporter for Guardian Australia. Kelly is a Guardian reporter. She told me about the history of deaths in custody in one particular state. And the case that really, um, I suppose, sparked the political momentum for that Royal Commission was the death of a 16-year-old boy called John Pat. John Pat died um, in a police station at Roeburn, uh, which is only 190 kilometres from... Um, Port Hedland, where Miss Jew died, and he died in, in 1983. And some of the elements of that case, he was he was picked up, um, he was out in public, um, and he was he was picked up by police, who uh, then brought him back to the um, Roeburn Police Station. And the facts of that were that um, he was he was picked up by off duty police officers. He he got a massive head injury. The suggestion is that he was um, bashed by the police officers, although no one was um, convicted of, of anything like that. And some of the lines from that case 
um, were that you know other other Aboriginal people were there saw him being dragged like a dead kangaroo by police. Like a dead kangaroo, but as history repeats itself, one of the cases that has been the signifier for raising awareness of Aboriginal deaths in custody has been the death of Miss Jew, a young Aboriginal woman who died in police custody in 2014. Miss Jew was imprisoned after unpaid fines of up to $1,000. That was a line that came up in Miss um, Jew's inquest a number of times. There's, there's footage of her being dragged from the police cell by police officers who were going to take her to hospital. They didn't have a stretcher. They decided they couldn't physically carry her like in a fireman's list and so they were dragging her out of the cell. And, um, sitting a few rows in front of me the first time I saw that footage was um, a Noongar elder and he was sitting there saying under his breath, she's dragged like a dead kangaroo. And it was that kind of um, continuity and that kind of feeling that nothing had really changed in sort of the 30-odd years between John Pat's death and Miss Jew's death was sort of very palpable. Unlike many deaths in custody, Miss Jew was given an inquest, which doesn't happen often. What's the process? How do you get an inquest? As far as I'm aware, um, it's a, a, a written request to the coroner to hold an inquest. That's Hannah McLeod. She's the... Deputy Chairperson, Deaths in Custody Watch Committee, WA. She talks me through how to get an inquest. Within the discretion of the coroner as to whether an inquest will be held... The exception is where children, I believe, die and there's always an inquest. It's often a commitment from the, um, the government as well because the, the situation deserves investigation by the coroner. Yeah, well, it's been pretty uh, stressing and draining and exhausting and we're actually glad to have it over with. That's Sean Harris. He's the uncle of Miss Dew. And so you get your inquiry. And you've jumped over the first few hurdles. Sean tells me what's it like sitting back and watching all the evidence unfold right in front of your eyes. A lot of the don't recall and don't remember that were in response to questions to witnesses on the stand and etc. like that. It doesn't look very good. Um, it's supposed to be to bring out the truth and what happened, what really happened things, but clearly the all parties that were accountable are, trying to, are still trying to get away with being accountable for what they clearly played part of, which was money's death in Keller was there every day in the recent inquest, watching the family's reaction and seeing the impact especially of the gruesome footage of Miss Jew's final hours. Jew's mother in particular, Della Rowe, didn't leave court when the footage was played. She would sit um, at the same spot by the end of the inquest. She'd sort of figure out her spot in the courtroom to sit and she would just sit there and um, sort of stare straight ahead while court staff, who were fantastic to the family the entire time, would you know be there with giving her um, tissues and holding her hand in support. Um, so it was quite difficult to see that and it was one of those things that you'd realise just how confronting the footage was every time a new person would be in courtroom to watch. There was sort of a rotating cast of supporters, people who knew the family member, fa family members, other family members and just other people, um, Noongar people and other people who supported them. And every time there was new people in the courtroom to see some of that footage, you'd sort of see, again, just how graphic it was because you'd get their reaction to it. What's in the footage? Why was it so graphic? showed Miss Jew walking after she'd been arrested with her um, 
then partner, um, show the two of them then walk through um, the cell, like the corridor of the police station, to the charge room, showed them being like locked in, being asked all the standard questions, like, have you had any injuries in the past? Is there anything we need to be worried about? And that's when she told police officers that she had had a broken rib at some time in the past and um, she had a blister on her foot. And she said she didn't need to go to hospital for either of those things at that time. And then, you know, it goes to the footage of her a couple of hours after that intake interview, crying in pain, crying, just making this unearthly sound for like half an hour while the police officer sat with her saying that she was in so much pain, she needed to go to the hospital, she needed to go to the hospital, and then shows her walking hunched over, shows her in the hospital walking in this hunched manner. We see that sort of progress and you can see that she gets worse over the three, well, not even three days, two and a bit days that she's in custody. You can see, you know, the, the, the pain is, is very visible. And then sort of one of the last segments of footage is um, police officers are in her cell trying to make her sit up. They're trying to take her to have a shower on um, Monday the 4th of August 2014. And this is about, this footage is from about an hour and a half, maybe two hours before she's died. You can see one of the police officers bend down to lift her up by pulling on her arm. The arm she actually pulls on is her right arm. And she, we know she had a broken fracture to her, her right ribs. So that would have been quite painful. Um, and she sort of falls back and smacks her head on the concrete floor with this police officer, this female police officer tries to pull her up. And the first time we saw that on the first day, the family has been warned that the footage is going to be played. Some of the family members left court, um, but a few of them, her mother, Della Rowan, her grandmother, Carol Rowe, didn't leave court at that time. But when you see her fall back and smack her head on the concrete, um, I, her grandmother and her mother, they all just started crying. The whole courtroom started crying. And um, her grandmother ran out and... After that, she wasn't in the footage. She didn't watch the footage for the rest of the time. But then after she's... What happens in the footage is after she falls and, and hits her head, you see um, the senior police officer, it was a guy called Sergeant Rick Bond, who's since left West Australian Police, but he was there and he came in and you see him bending down and talking to Miss Jew in the cell. There's no audio in the cell. You can't see or hear what he's saying. And then um, a, small, a short time later, maybe half an hour later, you see two police officers come in. One grabs her underneath her arms and drags her out. And then in the corridor, one picks up her feet and they carry her arms and feet to the back of the police van, put her in the police van, take her to the hospital. And what we heard in the inquest was that by the time she got to the hospital, it's believed that she had died. Why isn't the footage public? And there's actually a campaign, well, not really a campaign, there's sort of an argument going on by family members at the moment to release that footage. Um, a lawyer for the family members applied to the coroner to say, can we release this footage to the media? Um, the coroner uh, said that she understood that family members were OK with it being released, but she didn't want it to be released because she thought that once it's released, it can't be controlled. It, it, she said it could come back at some later stage and sort of they could be con family members could be confronted by this footage when they didn't expect it. It could be used in different ways. The coroner didn't want the family members to be triggered by the footage. But like Kellett said, the family members wanted the footage out there, especially Uncle Sean Harris. Because that footage is so powerful, it's so deep and shocking, and it actually proves to the world um, exactly how the us black people in Australia are still being treated. And it directly incriminates uh, so many parties that were involved. Um, I think the global backlash alone will be tremendous as, as well because the whole world 
knows about Jalika and they're starting to hear about Jalika more and more and Black Death in Custody in Australia as a whole. Um, Someone like Miss Jew, an Indigenous person, is 15.4 times more likely to be incarcerated than a non-Indigenous person. What causes miscarriages of justice like these? Jalika was severely deprived of her liberty by government carers while she was detained in custody because she was apparently, there was rumours going around that she was a junkie coming down. So apparently she didn't even get her temperature taken over three days, maybe only once um, from the top of my head. Because um, health staff heard rumours that she was a druggie. They didn't bother taking her temperature. Um, That's part of the police taking on the role as um, medical um, professionals. That's a big reason why black people die in custody because they're denied their medical, their medication, um, medical attention, their basic human rights. Nurse is not here because of, because of it. Well, it's a shocking indictment on police to have, to have uh, not cared for a young woman dying of domestic violence-related injuries. That's Anna again. She's critical of the role police played in Miss Stu's death. To be to be dying in their presence, uh, and uh, it was obvious that she was in a very serious, bad way. Um, to deny her medical treatment, it does. Um, when she was in such suffering, it does raise issues of of racism in West Australia. It raises issues about how Aboriginal women are still viewed in a most callous and extremely cold-hearted way. Keller tells me the family was particularly displeased with the police. For the family, it was more difficult listening to the police officers, even though there'd been sort of that time between them. Um, Just in part because by that stage we were hearing much of the same thing over and over and over again. Um, and also just because of their sort of history of, of Aboriginal deaths in custody. A history Sean knows too well. History shows that there are, no one has been held accountable and charged of any deaths in custody since, well, pretty much Invasion Day. So that's um, a massive fight in itself for us to get a conviction for Jalika. But we won't stop because there are so many people who were involved and have still freshly blood-stained hands, they need to be held accountable. But are they being held accountable? But because the police officers, 11 police officers, were sort of given um, internal reprimands, but the nature of those internal reprimands was, from the family's perspective, wholly insufficient. They were giving letters that advised them that they hadn't correctly followed some elements of police lock-up procedure, and they were basically um, given directed reading. I raise a question, Tanner, about she feels as an Indigenous woman witnessing and hearing the stories she does. I, I, I guess, on a more personal note, how does it make you feel as an Aboriginal woman to hear stories like this? Oh, it's, um, it's horrifying that, you know, we like to think that we're making progress and that we're getting to be a better 
that are placed and that racism is being addressed, but then we see a young woman lose her life. I think it's, it's an assault on all Aboriginal people, of, particularly of West Australia. While the scars are missed you, linger. Her uncle tells me about the journey. It's um, very angering, actually. Um, personally, I've had to travel so much. Um, I've travelled 40 plus thousand k's in the last year, year and a half or so. Um, from east to west and back and forth again to help spread awareness and to try and gather support for my niece's campaign for justice. So, um, to actually have the inquest over is a bit of a, a relief, yeah. Sean believes they shouldn't even be here. Mishdu should be alive. But that being said, we shouldn't be here having to have an inquest because Jalika should still be here. Simple antibiotics would have ensured that she'd still be alive. But the deprivation of liberty that was inflicted on her uh, um, by the supposed government carers while she was in uh, detaining custody is just criminal neglect and malpractice, misconduct, etc., etc. There's so much ways that Jalika was dealt the wrong hand. Sean says there's a global campaign to raise awareness of Miss Jew's story. We have global activists who are drawing comparisons to Sandra Bland. Um, the Say Her Name movement as well, the Black Lives Matter movement. So these are the repercussions already of how deeply affected the broader community is and the global broader community. Where's who now? The inquest may have ended. But Sean says the fight carries on. I think a lot of us involved with the campaign are feeling pretty drained at the moment and and still frustrated and angry um, as well. Um, the, it wasn't just the family or the campaign members in the inquest that were shocked at what we've seen and heard. It was pretty much the whole gallery. Um, yeah, the fact that the coroner has pressed the footage is uh, is traumatising. That's actually re-traumatising the family and all other victims of death in custody as well. Because that footage needs to be put out there to the broader global public so that the truth can be seen and that true justice can at least be dealt. This is a heartfelt poem written by Miss Jew's uncle, Dion Harris. This is for Annie Carroll, Sister Della, Jaleka, a nice rest in peace, and family. I think of my niece and the pain she endured, them nights in the cells when her voice wasn't heard. The cruel, sick mistreatment at the hands of the law must surely be exposed in a criminal court. But for WA police, it's a grain in the ocean because they mistreat their blacks with love and devotion. Their record on its own could stand mountain high 
because we all know how many of our family have died. They say that there is more than one way to skin a cat, and I think Australian governments have often showed us that, for they've killed us and maimed us in so many different ways, and we've suffered from birth to the end of our days. But this type of murder, it really was callous, so nasty it would make South Africa jealous. They murdered my niece, there's no other way to say it. She could have been saved with antibiotics instead of delaying it. So gather your ears, our international friends far and wide, because you know it was legal murder the way my beautiful niece died. My brothers led the charge to try and get our family justice. Please support us in our fight against this island full of racists. Thank you. Well, Dion Lindsay Harris. beautiful people of colour on TV and connect viewers in ways which transcend race and unite us. That's the real Team Australia. You know, you look at the American TV, British TV, it, you know, has, uh, you know, it's got shows with d different nationalities and, 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 and not just putting nationalities just for the point of difference, but creating work that caters for um, actors of different backgrounds. line I see green fields and lovely flowers and beautiful white women with their arms stretched out to me over that line but I can't seem to get there no how I can't seem to get over that line that was Harriet Tubman in the 1800s and let me tell you something the only thing that separates women of color from anyone else is opportunity. You cannot win an Emmy for roles that are simply not there. That's all we have this week. Thank you for listening to Racecard. Um, you remember you can find us on iTunes, Acast, by searching Racecard. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Racecard. Tweet us. You can find us on Twitter at RacecardPod. Um, and hopefully we'll be back next week. And that's goodbye from me. See ya. No, look, basically it's a funny podcast. That was just a stupid plug. Just delete all that shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but, but seriously, I want to talk about, like, um, in, the, in the podcast, like, with podcasting, podcasting mm. has really, like, come to prominence in mm. the last couple of years. So I guess Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.